Welcome to This is the Jet Life with Dan Burnham, your guide to the New York Jets sports and much more. And now, your host, Dan Burnham. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This is the Jet Life. Here we are, 0-12, and what the hell did we just witness? The Jets lost a game that they had already won against a team that I can envision I consider a rival in the Las Vegas Raiders. And oh my goodness, this 0-11 historically bad team, I believe one of 15 teams to ever go 0-11 to start, drops to 0-12, losing a game that they had already won due to bad coaching, a bad bad play call, some bad execution throughout. But this is a game that, I mean, for crying out loud, you go 0-16, you become one of the three worst teams in NFL history, when you have an opportunity that's given to you, like a 24 to 28 lead with 13 seconds to go with the opponent's ball at the 50-yard line. I mean, we're going to get into that plenty, but the Jets had the exact same scenario with four seconds to go at the 50-yard line, and the two teams, you can see how they played it entirely differently and how each one worked out. I mean, I'm incredibly frustrated. I have a lot of emotions on this whole thing. There's a lot of people to be upset with. At the same time, the Jets had won a game after 59 minutes and 48 seconds. So for that, it was our best game yet. It was against a team that's supposed to be potentially a playoff team. So that felt pretty good. There were some really good performances in there, some young guys playing well. There's the half view that's like, okay, there's a lot of value in getting that first overall pick. Way more value in that than winning one game and drafting second or third. I just... As a historian and a huge fan of the game and the franchise, I don't like to see the team be one of the worst three teams in NFL history going 0-16. So the pride aspect of that holds me from enjoying the value that exists with the first overall pick. It's a mix between the two. But between everything, I mean, this has just been one chaotic year. I don't know who's still out there, who still listens to a podcast like this. It's just reviewing a game the New York Jets lose again. Hey, how'd we lose this week? I appreciate you being here. I mean, I'm still here every week. I have a million thoughts on this stuff, whether it means anything or not. At this point, all we are is just a a win for whoever plays us. 16 teams get one win this year. Ridiculous. Um, I'm going to try to stay positive because there is, like I said, a lot of positives. Keep in mind, the Jets were up 28-24 with 13 seconds to go. So they'd already won the game. First win of the season. And then they lost it by giving it away. And uh, we're going to get to all of that. And so much more. So let us get into it. But before I do, I need to remind you to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. It really helps out. Um, Yeah, appreciate it. This is under the Gang Green Nation podcast series title. This is the Jet Life. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Jets underscore Dan. But I go in waves of like being really active on Twitter and kind of taking a step back. I have been in step back mode, at least in terms of posting on there because I feel like I'm in the minority with my thoughts on how the team should be handled right now. I'm, I'm getting a little tired of the sarcasm of the fan base and just everybody talking about, uh, you know, who can make a funny joke about why it's great the New York Jets lose a game and this and that, and it's just not as enjoyable, analytical of a place 
that it was when the season started. We were talking about positional matchups and this and that, and now everybody just wants to talk about, you know, every time somebody gets a holding penalty at the end of the game, they should be the new MVP of the team and whatever else. So not as active on there. I'm sure I'll get back into it. Who knows? Maybe the Jets win next week against Seattle. Maybe I'm super active all over it. I don't know, but follow me on Twitter at Jets underscore Dan. So where to begin? We'll do a quick recap here. The Jets come out doing pretty well. They get the ball first, 74 yards and a touchdown. Then Las Vegas gets the ball back. They start driving a little bit, 43 yards down the field. They throw an interception picked off by Arthur Mollett and tip, uh, dropped ball by Henry Ruggs, really, who, by the way, had a pretty horrible game up until one ridiculous play at the end. Las Vegas ties the game, goes 7-7. Jets score again, 7-13. We're looking pretty good at this point. We had a bad missed extra point again. Frustrating me with the special teams. The kickers that we've had, that's one of those positions that's just like, listen, Joe Douglas, don't put us through this again. How many times do we have to have like some ridiculous middle school level kicker playing for the team? Somebody nobody's ever heard of. Three guys in a row. Corey Bedvick, Sergio Castillo, Sam Ficken. I mean, can we get a real named kicker out there? Everybody else seems to find one. Just the Jets are playing with these hodgepodge group of knucklehead shankers. Anyways, uh, so we're only up 13-7 to at this point. And then the wheels fall off. So at this point, Sam Darnold has thrown two touchdowns. He hadn't thrown a touchdown since week three. They reminded you of that on the national broadcast time and time again. But he hasn't thrown a touchdown since week three. Throws two to Jamison Crowder early on in this game. It's looking really good. Sam Darnold is in a bit of a rhythm. Offense looks good. And then the turnovers start happening. A guy gets around, uh, Clellan Farrell gets around Makai Becton. Force fumble on Sam Darnold. Darnold throws another interception on a throw to Perriman that was tightly covered. And then another strip sack by the Raiders. And the Jets don't score more points for the end of the half, right? At that point, the Raiders are leading 17 to 13. You're thinking, all right, things were looking really good at first, and now we can't hold on to the ball. Sam Darnold's starting to get those turnovers back, and you're like, for every great thing that you're seeing, finally a game where Sam Darnold's getting the ball into the end zone, that feels really good, but those turnovers are back, the good and the bad at the same time. The Jets have not consistently put together a really complete game all year, and I wouldn't say that this game would be complete, but usually in every game that they've played, especially in the last, like, six, seven weeks, there's always a, a series of the game where it's just, like, they have 20 yards on four combined drives, just like punt, 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 punt. And all of a sudden it's like, what just happened at that point in the game where they just couldn't do anything? This game, that didn't happen. They did punt to start both possessions in the second half, and the Raiders scored a touchdown to go up 24-13. But then at that point with the Jets in a hole, this horrible 0-11 team, they get a little bit of fire back, down 11, and they start moving the ball again. They have a 96-yard touchdown drive on nine plays, eight of which were runs, and most of them to the left side. Ty Johnson and Josh Adams and Sam Darnold combining, rushing up the field on a 96-yard drive, something this team has not done really all year. One running, two moving the ball when they start inside their own 10, and they get a touchdown. Then they get the two-point conversion. Shout-out to the boy Mims getting involved there. First time catching a ball in the end zone. Only two points, but it was exciting nonetheless. Then we stop the Raiders. We force a fumble. Jets get the ball back, 44-yard drive, another touchdown, run by Ty Johnson. 28-24, New York Jets. Your 0-11 team that hasn't done anything all year, hasn't shown you much life. 
is winning a game against a probable playoff contender, a team in the mix of it at least, that desperately wants to win this game. We historically play the Raiders pretty well. And we're up. And they get the ball. It's like four minutes to go, and they're driving down the field. But we're able to stop them. They have to go for it on fourth down because we're up by four. They can't get, can't kick a field goal. They go for it. They turn it over on downs after going like 70 yards downfield. Turn it over. We get the ball back. And this is the point in the game where if Adam Gase is able to cook up anything, they could potentially get one first down. The game is over. The Raiders have no timeouts. And the Jets are basically able to just dwindle the clock down. All they need is one first down. They don't. They get five yards. They punt the ball back. Raiders get it. They have it like 30-yard line. They move up to the 20. No timeouts. Clock's ticking down. 13 seconds left. Actually, it's probably like 20 seconds left. They have one deep shot to one of the receivers, Aguilar or Ruggs. It was a horrible throw. Again, it was basically like single coverage with no safety help over the top. They didn't get that one. And the play after that, 13 seconds left from their own 50. Greg Williams sends seven guys. Matthias Farley stays in a sort of QB spy situation and then delay blitzes up the up the middle. With eight guys rushing, we don't get pressure on Derek Carr, really. He slides up in the pocket and is able to throw the ball 50 yards downfield to the fastest young receiver in the draft, Henry Ruggs, who ran a 4-2-7 or something, against an undrafted rookie cornerback, Lamar Jackson, who had hardly been on this team at this point. No help over the top. He falls for a double move, and it was just unbelievable. And then, at this point, it's like this whole half the Jets fan base is like, probably more than half the fan base is super excited this happened because, hey, right back in line for that first overall pick. But, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't want to win this game. I mean, you still have to be frustrated because you know that the team, even if you want the Jets to lose, you still have to know the players want to win. The coaches want to win. Maybe management and hire don't want to win. But coaches down do. And so a lot of people that are important to us are really let down by this. The decisions made by certain people. And yeah, so we'll go right into the coaching here. All right, Adam Gase had an interesting game plan. I'm sure that his game plan was not going to be anywhere near the successful. But... After one carry, Frank Gore gets injured. He has this big head-to-head contact with Damon Arnett, a guy who's a little dirty, known for doing this sort of thing. Frank Gore's out of the game. Both of them are in concussion protocol. So we're running with Ty Johnson and Josh Adams. Now, when the season began, we had Le'Veon Bell, Frank Gore, and LaMichael Pirine. Le'Veon Bell moved on. That's fine. He's not been super successful for us or for the Chiefs. We bring in Ty Johnson, a practice squad player who was drafted in the sixth round by the Lions. Cut by them. We pick him up, add him to our team at the end of our roster. Josh Adams has been on our practice squad, played with the Eagles for a little bit, but in 2019, I think he had like three carries or something, but bounced around in our practice squad. And as a guy that was familiar with the team, never got a ton of carries. So when you look at it, that's basically your running back number four and running back number five, Ty Johnson and Josh Adams. Now, without Frank Gore, Adam Gase can't just do what he wants to do and give Gore 18 carries straight up the middle. All year long, that's what we've done. All year long, we get 60 yards out of Gore on 18 carries. 
And that's just what it is. But you've got Ty Johnson. He's too skinny to go up the middle. He's too small. He's kind of a scatty sort of guy. So what do you do? All right, we're not going to run up the middle. I guess because it's his skill set, we should go outside. Well, which side should we go to? How about Makai Becton? It's basically all game. They run to the left side behind Makai Becton. And they have their best rushing performance of the season by far. The best one in like two years. Over 200 yards of rushing. We're going to get into the rushing stats and players and stuff later on. But in my opinion, Adam Gase didn't even want to run this successful rushing attack that we had. He was forced to do it because the guy that he wanted to lean on heavily that we've seen all year consistently. Frank Gore has been a model of consistency in his runs this year. He always goes forward. He never gets more than 14 yards. It's like a three to six yard carry almost every single time. Oftentimes closer to three. It's always up the middle. And he always ends with like, you know, 14 to 20 carries and 50 to 70 yards rushing. And that's it. But you put in these guys, and it really made me think to myself when I'm watching Ty Johnson and Josh Adams, some guy with some spring in their step, really made me realize between Le'Veon Bell, Frank Gore, and Michael Pirine, there's a very good chance that all three of them are low-level NFL running backs right now at this point in their careers. Which is a bummer because we paid a ton for Le'Veon Bell. It's a bummer because Frank Gore is a legend, and we'd love to see him be great forever. And it's a bummer because Michael Pirine wasn't much better than the other two. He had some moments here and there, but he wasn't getting any big gashing runs. And uh, I don't know. We'll talk about more of that stuff later. Could be possibly a change on the offensive line that's causing that. But Adam Gase was put in a situation where he accidentally succeeded. And so he ran the ball really well. What he did with Sam Darnold, moving the ball to the receivers, I didn't like the receiver share targets that we're getting. The play calling still has no creativity to it. I mean, this game was a back and forth between play actions, regular straight dropbacks, and then handoffs to the left, basically, was, I would say, 75-plus percent of the play calling. So there's still not a lot of creativity there. Not happy with Adam Gase. Also, get one first down at the end of the game, have a little balls with, like, three minutes left, two minutes, whatever it was, to get one first down and win the game. But instead, no. But that's fine. They still should have won this game. It all comes down to Greg Williams. And here's our quick, see how quick we can get it done, Greg Williams section. This week, I think it was yesterday, Greg Williams was fired. He made one of the most historically horrible end-of-game decisions that anybody's ever made. The only thing you have to do in a situation with 13 seconds left and the team has no timeouts at their own, well, at both teams' 50-yard line, is make sure that they don't get to the end zone. The only other thing that they could possibly do is something like 20 yards or 30 yards, get out of bounds really quick, and take chunks that way. But eventually, they have to throw to the end zone. We know that. So all you really have to do, whether they want to do it in two plays or three plays, is just don't let them cross that line. Now, I would say easier said than done, but 95% of the time that a team tries to stop somebody from doing that, it works. That's just what happens. Freak plays here and there, maybe. But when you've got guys lined up there, they're not going to score. Greg Williams opts not to do that. This was horrible for a bunch of reasons. We didn't have the personnel to do it. Having a guy like Lamar Jackson, an undrafted rookie, guarding the fastest young wide receiver in the league wasn't great. The fact that they did the play before and they had a guy open and Derek Carr just missed the throw wasn't great. The fact that the game was won and these players have been working, scrapping, and finally deserved to win one game and you blew it. It was horrible. I don't know why he did it. We assume that he wanted to jostle Derek Carr, and he'd been bad under pressure all game, so why not just do it again? 
you know what? Why not do that? Sure. Why not do the safe thing that every other coach in NFL history does and just defend the end zone? Because he's got an ego. Greg Williams wants to be Greg. I don't want to win the way other teams win. I want to win like Greg Williams. So with his ego, he rushes eight. The Jets lose. It is his fault on that play. There were plenty of opportunities to win the game or play better earlier on. A lot of mistakes made by a lot of people, coaches, players combined. But that game, on that play, should have been won. So Adam Gase fires Greg Williams, and rightfully so because that decision was so, so bad. And Adam Gase still does, think of it from his perspective, Adam Gase actually does want to win games, wants to salvage his career, wants to stay in the NFL to some extent or get a job somewhere doing something. So winning a game does help. He doesn't want to be an 0-16 coach, one of three. And he had it. He had it won. But to be a fly on the wall in that room where Adam Gase, who's like, in my opinion, I'm not in there, but I imagine he's one of the least respected people around the NFL, talking to Greg Williams, who's one of the meanest and angriest person in the NFL, as that respectless man fires that angry man, it must have been something to see. But Marcus May asked to speak to the media, from my understanding, after the game was over, to explain to them that he thought it was a horrible play call. He said it wasn't the right call, or whatever his words were, weren't as bad as that, but basically said that they didn't want to run that. That was a Greg Williams decision that they tried to execute. And when you think about it, and you watch what the Raiders did, they kept their running back and tight end in to block on that game. It only sent three receivers out with three men covering. Because even though they needed to get the ball caught in the end zone and it was going to be a Hail Mary attempt, they had a feeling that Greg Williams was going to blitz here. So instead of having five guys try to catch the ball, they were like, oh, we'll just pick up the blitz. So what didn't even catch him off guard? Because in most situations, when you need to get the ball downfield, you'd like to have receivers down there, right? I mean, you'd assume that the team is just going to be back playing defense. So if they're going to have eight guys in coverage, doesn't matter whether you send three or five, you got a better chance with five. There's going to be a clogged up middle anyway. But that's not the case when you've got no safety help and you're sending eight guys. So we'll just bring guys back in and then we'll have one-on-one. And if one guy wins, throw it there. That's all she wrote. So Greg Williams is fired, and deservedly so. But I do want to say this as a farewell to Greg Williams because I'm not completely against what he did for this team. I do think that he took a big step back this year. He reminds me a lot of a Ryan Fitzpatrick type. Ryan Fitzpatrick has moved around from team to team. He's been on, I don't know, nine, ten teams. And every single time he finds success in the beginning, and eventually it gets stale. It's not working the way that it did. It loses some of its its magic. And he moves on. Rinse, repeat. Greg Williams is the same sort of thing. He's moved on many times, played for or been a DC and a coach for many different teams. And he's always found success in the beginning to his aggressive nature and the way that he gets a lot out of his players and sends blitzes and whatnot. And then eventually it's run its course. So last year, the Jets were a bad team with a lot of young players trying to create a new identity. And Greg Williams, with his fire and energy and passion, was a good thing. He kicked those guys in the butt and he said, get to work. You guys aren't anywhere near good enough. And he got a lot out of his players. And we performed better. Year two, that message, that energy, that fire, it's not quite as scary. You know, you got that boss that yells at you for the first time and you're like, whoa, this is this is intense. But then after they've done it 30, 40, 50 times, who knows how many at this point, 
it just doesn't resonate exactly the same way. So I think you get to that point with Greg Williams and his coaching. So I get it. And we were going to have to clean house. This Adam Gase thing's got to go. Unfortunately, Brant Boyer, he's a good coach, but he may end up moving on. Greg Williams, he's going to have to move on because we got to clean house, get all new guys in here, fresh blood. A lot of new things have to change. Someone a little more in line with JD's vision. And that's fine. Greg Williams was most likely going to go. I'm not happy with the discipline that he's shown with this team, the penalties and whatnot. And he's definitely regressed this year. I wasn't happy with the way he kind of had a one-dimensional defense, a lot of Tampa 2, a lot of zone coverage, bend, don't break, didn't work all year, a lot of blitzes that didn't get a lot of pressure. And overall, I thought it was a big step back from last season. But the greatest thing that he did, two things. One was what I mentioned before. He gave these young guys a kick in the butt and said, we got to get to work, we got to work harder. And I think that he instilled some really good intensity and fire into some young guys who will be veterans and leaders on this team in the next couple of years. So that's important. The other most important thing that he did was he got Jamal Adams to where he is. And no, he's not playing for us right now, but what he got from Jamal Adams last year is the value that we were able to trade to the Seahawks to get two first-round picks that are going to be probably some of the most monumental value pieces that the Jets will have in what will become this rebuild into what I imagine will be a pretty awesome team. A lot of hypotheticals here. But two first-round picks. Jamal Adams was having a very good first and second year. His third year with Greg Williams, he really shined. He was leading the league safety in all sorts of metrics. He was going to break safety records for sacks. He was all over the field, and the whole world saw what he could do. Coaches get stuff out of players, and Todd Bowles wasn't getting the same level out of Jamal Adams as Greg Williams. So he came in. And he kind of wrote the book on this is what Jamal can do. He put him all over the field, cornerback, slot, linebacker, safety, anywhere you name him, Jamal Adams could go there, a jack of all trades, and be a disruptor and make things happen. And that's what made him worth two first-round picks. Now, you don't believe me, Greg Williams originally was incorrect in thinking that Pete Carroll and the Seahawks defense would be very boring for Jamal Adams. He said, eh, he's not going to get to do the same stuff that he did here in New York. But you know what? He's doing the exact same thing that he did here in New York. If you watch those Seattle games, and we'll see it next week, Jamal Adams, his splits at each position are basically the exact same as they were with the Jets. He's all over the field. Safety, corner, nickel, linebacker, blitzes a ton, always around the ball. Because they just watched what Greg Williams did as a recipe and said, yes, we want that, we'll take that, we're going to mimic that. He wrote the book on it, on how to play this guy. And for that, I'm extremely thankful because those two first-round picks would never have been here if it wasn't for the coaching that he did and the positions that he put Jamal Adams in. And even if we didn't get those and kept Jamal Adams, he wouldn't be the player that he is today without that kick in the butt and the opportunities that Greg Williams gave him. So for that, thank you, Greg. Appreciate what you did last year. You made a pretty decent defense from what was supposed to be a pretty horrible defense. And this year... We got a lot of penalties, gave up a lot of easy zone passes, and won no games with you. So we're moving on after the worst call I've ever seen to end a game. So that is our coaching. Let us see. I think now would be a good time to do father time because it's on the same subject. And, yeah, 
We've been doing Father Time early. It works better here. This is this week's submission by my father, David Burnham, for Father Time. Remember the springboard that would vault the Jets and fans to a new stratosphere from the darkest depths of the NFL despair? Well, believe it or not, it is happening before our eyes. It has started. Greg Williams came up to the springboard and performed his best worst belly flop. He blitzed the whole team and never considered that Derek Carr might actually get the pass on its way. It was a beautiful throw to the maybe fastest player in the league. Left out on an island was a poor cornerback, Lamar Jackson, undrafted free agent, left out, hung out to dry by Greg Williams as the only line of defense. It was horrible, and he was rightly fired for it. I feel sorry for Lamar, and I commend Marcus May for defending his teammates after the game. Now everyone rightly says, hey, Gase has to be fired too. He's the head coach and ultimately responsible for all calls the team makes. Why wasn't he fired? He stinks too. He stinks worse. Well, hold on. Coach Gase needs to walk the plank, but not yet. We need to wait until Black Monday. He isn't done yet. The Monday after Week 17, the end of the regular season, that is when he will be certainly leaving one Jets drive with a box of personal items in his arms as he walks to his car for the last time. We are getting a new head coach and new coaching staff. We are going to spend our bounty of cash on free agents. We are going to trust Joe Douglas to have another stellar draft. And we are going to get our new quarterback. We are going to have the best fall Sundays that Jets fans have had in over a decade. It has started. Go Jets. End scene. So yeah, I mean... A lot to unpack in this one, but again, the positivity drawn from negativity that my father has consistently remained with all season. Things keep getting worse. This team gets messier and messier in a lot of respects in terms of coaching and record and optics. But as that happens, my dad gets more and more positive, and he's remained pretty consistent. Recently, he's into Trevor Lawrence, completely involved in that whole thing. But his idea is that there are great days ahead. Joe Douglas is the right man to lead us there. He truly believes it. He thinks that this coaching staff is going to be fired. And this is all part of the process to get us there. And I talk to him every single week about it. And no matter how much I, I still get mad about stuff, I'm like, how could this possibly? And every single time he's like, listen, this is all part of the grand master plan that is working right before our eyes. The same thing that he thought was happening in week six stayed true in week 11 is still true here, and it will be at the end of the season. We will be replacing this coaching staff, so worrying about it now isn't that big of a deal. To him, the most important thing is getting that quarterback. And should we fire Greg Williams along the way? I mean, that only potentially makes the plan greater. Right now you've got some weird discrepancy coaching issues a defensive coordinator, maybe the spirits are lost there a little bit, or there's a little bit more chaos on the defensive side of the ball, and we have a little bit more trouble winning games. Of course, that's not Adam Gase's intent, but he's not worried about any of it. He believes that this whole coaching staff is on its way out, and that with another great Joe Douglas draft, some good free agents, and in his mind, a new quarterback. Life is going to be good again. So for that, it's inspiring to hear. I mean, not the way to get there. It's a horrible, 
horrible, depressing, really, really lame way to get to the end result that you're looking for. But when he's got that kind of confidence and like, this is working, it is, it's hard to listen and be like, you know what? It might be. I mean, Joe Douglas had this draft most recently is probably the best draft that we've had in the last 10 years. And now he's got even more ammo for next year's draft, which is supposed to be another really deep class. So if he does that again with more ammo, I mean, we could rebuild this team really quick. We've got the money to do it. We're going to have a new coaching staff. There's a plenty, plenty of reasons to think that 2023 will be amazing. You just have to fight through everything that you've seen in the past that leads you to believe that this franchise is cursed, horrible, and a wreck. So thank you, Dad, for this week's Father Time. I also feel bad for Lamar Jackson. I don't think Lamar Jackson is necessarily a long-term NFL cornerback, but to be in that situation at the end of the game, I don't put it on him. He fell for the double move. But you got to keep in mind that if Henry Ruggs caught a slant pass and Lamar Jackson was defending a deep ball and he had any sort of separation where he couldn't be tackled instantly, Ruggs was going to outrun the whole team anyway and it was going to be a touchdown. So when you have no safety help over the top, you have to watch out for those things. He was way mismatched there. Very unfair. Very unfair. It is worth noting that our interim defensive coordinator will be Frank Bush, our linebackers coach. I personally thought that Denard Wilson, our defensive backs coach, was probably the right man for the job, but I guess players, from what I've read, believe that Frank Bush carries that same sort of intensity and and sort of, uh, I guess, style that Greg Williams had. And so it's probably easier just to have consistency rather than try to remake the wheel in week 14 and go from there. Maybe just try to keep things somewhat the same and just have a coach that wouldn't call such an egregious, horrible, horrible late game call. Okay, so before we move on, we are going to do a quick commercial. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have to start moving through some segments because I am a little bit behind where I thought I'd be at this point. All right, AFC East check-in. The Jets are still in last 0-12. Buffalo Bills are 9-3 after their big win against San Francisco. Miami wins, they're 8-4. And, and the Patriots win, 45-0 against the Chargers, beat them up. They're 6-6, six and, six and the Patriots have brought themselves back into the playoff race. They still aren't in it right now. If there's one team we don't want to make it, you know, Buffalo Bills, Miami, their division rivals, sure, fine, but let's not let the Patriots and Bill Belichick make it, please. We get to play them at the end of the year. That would be a great game to win, but it only helps if you want that first overall pick if the Jaguars have won a game. So let's check our draft standings real quick. The Jets are still slotted to pick first overall at 0-12. Right above them, the Jacksonville Jaguars at 1-11. At this point, with the Bengals having two wins and one tie, the Jets would have to win two games and then another tie or another win would have to win probably three games at that point to actually draft after the Bengals, and that's not going to happen. So it's a two-team race for that first overall pick. It's Jets and it's Jaguars. The Jaguars this week lost, or this most recent week, lost to the Minnesota Vikings in a very, very close game that they could have won, but they're the Jaguars and they're 1-11 for a reason, and just like the Jets, they found a way to lose the game in overtime. Coming up, they play against the Titans. We're going to slate that as a loss. They play 
the Ravens, that should be a loss. They play the Colts, that should be a loss. But between the Ravens and Colts, they play the Chicago Bears. And that, in my opinion, is their one last real chance to win a game. The Jets, on the other hand, we play the Seahawks, the Rams, the Patriots. I mean, we're going to have trouble winning a game. I think the Patriots are our real opportunity to win one. And I would love to beat them in the final week of the season, to knock them out of the playoffs if they're still fighting for it, to get that one win, to dodge being owned 16, to beat a division rival like the Patriots and just stomp on their face one time to end the season. It would be amazing, but it only comes if the Jaguars have won a game if we want that first overall pick. So when you're looking at the schedule, yeah, it'd be great if they could beat Tennessee or Baltimore. Maybe they lay an egg. But Chicago is the likely scenario their best pathway to winning a game. That is our draft standings. We're going to move over to team stats. It was pretty even team stats overall and more impressive than usual for the Jets, but in reality, they had won a game for 99.9% of it, 28 to 24. They ended up losing 28 to 31 to the Raiders, but in this game, they tied for first downs, 24 to 24. The Jets had 376 total yards of offense, a number that we don't ever get to. Now, I think last week we were at about 320. A lot of times we're under 300 this year because our offense has been so bad. That number that we're looking for, that I've been saying, that magic number for me is 400 yards. You're looking at somewhere between 300 passing yards, 100 rushing yards. Of course, that can be swayed one way or the other, but 400 yards is kind of what you're looking for. Jets were close, and it makes sense. Best offensive performance of the year, I'd I'd say. Raiders had 440. Now, when it came to getting those yards, passing the ball, we weren't all that effective. 170 total net passing yards after sack yardage comes into play. Sam Darnold was sacked three times for 16 yards. Derek Carr was sacked twice, 13 yards lost. They had 368 passing yards to our 170, which is, you know, 200 yards more. Ridiculous. But when it came to rushing the ball... We held the Raiders to 72 total rushing yards on 2.9 yards per rush. 2.9 yards per rush. The Jets, on the other hand, 206 rushing yards, 6.1 yards per carry. We were 4 for 4 within the red zone. And actually, surprisingly, what we always talk about every week, third down efficiency, the Jets were 5 for 9, which was actually better than the Raiders, 6 for 14. Surprising to see such a high number in that column. Over 50% on third down efficiency. We only had nine tries on third downs. We were moving the ball before that. Very effective in the run game and picking up big yardage. When you're not running up the middle for three yards and you're instead of running to the outside behind Mekhi Becton for nine yards every play, it's a lot easier to get that stuff done. Now, another issue for the Jets in this game, penalties. We had more than the Raiders. Six penalties for 40 yards. They had three for 21, half. Turnovers, the Jets had three of them, two fumbles and an interception. Derek Carr and the Raiders, they had one fumble, one interception, two total turnovers, so we lost the turnover battle there. When you look at it, total yardage, penalties, turnovers, and that last play were really the issues in the game. When you look at the others, rushing the ball, great for the Jets. Picking up first downs, third down efficiency, Yards per play. All that stuff was pretty solid for New York. 
6.3 yards per play for the team. Better than the Raiders' 5.9. But the turnovers, the penalties, and that last play call. And a missed extra point that, you know, we could have had an extra, could have an extra point in there. That's our team stats. We're going to move over to the offensive performances. And in this game, Sam Darnold definitely bounced back from what we'd seen, but it still wasn't a great game. He had a 97 quarterback rating. I think that's deceiving because that really only takes into account the one interception. He had two more fumbles in there. But he had two passing touchdowns, and he had one rushing touchdown. So for his three turnovers, he did also have three touchdowns. We don't look for our quarterbacks to have an even split between turnovers and touchdowns. We look for a two-to-one touchdowns to turnovers or higher. Of course, higher is ideal. Just, I don't know if we've ever really had a quarterback who had higher than a two-to-one ratio in that category. We're lucky to be slightly over one-to-one with our history. Sam Darnold threw for 186 yards, and he added in 26 extra rushing yards on three attempts. He had those three total touchdowns, two passing to Crowder, one rushing himself on the right side. He was 14 for 23, and it was an all right game, but he was sacked twice and lost the ball, and he threw one interception. The interception was not ridiculously ugly. It was a badly thrown ball, but it wasn't like to some wide over receiver or him making a really bad, horrible decision. It was just a very tightly covered guy. Brashad Perriman wasn't able to fight the ball away, and it was a nice interception by the Raider. The fumbles, you'd like him to hold on to the ball. You'd like him to uh, not stand in the pocket as quickly to see the people around him. But we had two of those. So an average game from him. It was nice to see him chucking the ball, getting into the end zone, using his legs a little bit. But he definitely, I mean, he's just not where he needs to be. And he's still struggling in a lot of phases of the game. Now we can talk about the running game. I love the running game in this one. Player of the game. We're going right there. Ty Johnson, 22 carries, 104 yards. He had a touchdown in this game. His average was 4.7 yards per attempt. I like anything over four. You get 4.7 on 22. That's a big enough sample size for me to say, way to go, game ball. He got that touchdown as well. And believe it or not, Ty Johnson is the Jets' first 100-yard rusher since 2018, October 7th, against the Broncos. You may remember... Isaiah Carell rushing for 219 yards against that team. That's the last time we had a 100-yard rusher, 2018. But Ty Johnson, this sixth-round draft pick who'd been cut, left for dead, Jets pick him up, give him a chance, Frank Gore goes down, and he does this, the best performance that we've seen since 2018 by accident because everybody else is injured. Way to go, Ty Johnson. He added in two catches for 13 yards. And this is actually his third player of the game. He had one offensive player of the game in a week where we did nothing, and he had like a 35-yard run, and it was surprising. He had one special teams player of the game for good kick returning. And now he's got this one. So Ty Johnson, even though he's a name that we're not super familiar with, he doesn't get a ton of playing time, he's really made his impact felt in his minimal snap percentages. He's a guy that needs to get more playing time, and hopefully when Frank Gore is healthy, I love Frank Gore, love what he's doing at this stage in his career, but for crying out loud, if this isn't a wake-up call to try something new and run behind a guy like Mackay Becton with a guy like Ty Johnson, then I don't know. I don't know. I mean, then you're just, then maybe you do have a coach that's trying to lose 16 games just to see if he can do it. We had another good running back in this game, Josh Adams. He only carried the ball eight times, but for 74 more yards. 9.3 yards per carry for Josh Adams. 
Super impressive from what we saw from him. That's our fifth running back, a guy that was picked up off the streets because we had no Le'Veon Bell, Michael Pirine injured. He probably wasn't part of this game plan, but when Frank Gore went down, you had to have two running backs, somebody spelling Ty Johnson a little bit. And he had a 25-yard run. And 50 yards aside from that. Between him and Johnson, they had 30 carries for 180 yards and a touchdown. Incredible what happens when you try something new. The right thing. And imagine if they had like a really elite, game-changing style running back. I mean, this this offensive line is on its way. So Franco had that one carry for two yards. Sam Darnold, we mentioned, had three carries for 26 yards. One of those was for a touchdown. He had a nice 17-yard run earlier in the game as well. But this offensive line was a huge reason that we had 206 yards rushing on 34 attempts with two rushing touchdowns. Our best rushing performance in like two years. And we can see Joe Douglas's goal when he came to this team was to rebuild the offensive line, an area, a point of emphasis for him, what he wanted to do first. And he got McGovern, brought in Van Roten, brought in George Fant, drafted Mekhi Becton, benched Alex Lewis and started Pat Elfline. We've got five new guys playing from what we had last year. And this team is playing better than ever. In this week, week 12, the Jets surpassed last year's total rushing touchdowns total rushing yards, and have more than one yard per carry higher than they had last year. The rushing game has improved tremendously, and it's been behind guys like 37-year-old Frank Gore, a mid-round rookie who's not really run all that many times in the Michael Piran, a sixth-round guy cut from the Lions, Ty Johnson, and a journeyman, Josh Adams. And in Week 12, we are already better than we were in basically all categories in running the ball last year. And that's a testament to what Joe Douglas has done with this offensive line. When you look at their passing performances, last year they gave up 52 sacks. This year, if everything remains the same, they're on pace to give up 44, so also better in that respect. And I don't believe he's done there. I think that he could still improve left guard. Pat Elflon has been filling in for Alex Lewis, as Alex Lewis has basically been benched at this point. My opinion on that, I've heard... Various things. You know, we knew that Alex Lewis was suffering um, or struggling, not playing well this year. He's been the guy I've been focusing on the offensive line all year, is not doing his job as well as everybody else. But everyone's kind of saying that, like, Alex Lewis was saying a bunch of negative stuff about the Jets and saying, like, he shouldn't have been here. Maybe he should have gone with Jamal Adams, and possibly that's why Adam Gase benched him. In my opinion, I think that the coaching staff kind of told Alex Lewis that he's not playing well. He's about to get benched. That's what caused him to freak out. And they said, all right, if you're going to be benched, then we're just going to make you inactive because if you're going to be a little pain in the butt, then we don't need you out here. That's what I think happened. Elfline has been coming in and playing, in my opinion, better than Alex Lewis did. And I'm not lobbying for Pat Elfline to necessarily be the left guard of the future for the Jets. I would be perfectly fine with him being a great swing guard that can also play center because that's what he started doing in Minnesota. And just like last year when Alex Lewis came in, Coleccio Semele had his grievance, left the Jets. Alex Lewis comes in as our backup guy and actually plays pretty good football, and we get convinced, you know, he should be the starter. I don't want to do the same thing with Pat Elfline. Maybe he's just a really good backup. It's okay to have great backups in your offensive line. In fact, that is ideal. I would love to have great backups on the offensive line because you always end up playing Chuma Adogas and Connor McDermott and David Andrews. All these guys end up playing, so have good backups there. That's possibly where Elfline will succeed. 
But when you look at it, the holes that they're opening up, running to the left side, I don't have the exact number. But when you watch that game again, you just see over and over they were running and picking up huge chunk yardage to the left, right between Elfline, the left guard, and Mackay Becton, the left tackle, or outside of Becton. And it's way more successful than it ever was with Alex Lewis. And I believe it's because what my dad tells me every week, what he's been saying for, well, not every week, two weeks now, is that Alex Lewis always takes a step back when he's run blocking. He's unable to get that strong push forward. So he takes a step back. Mackay Becton is strong, so he takes a step forward. But they're on the left side, and if you're handing the ball off to a running back that's directly behind you, and he's trying to go through a hole on that left side between Becton and Lewis, if you're imagining it, if Lewis is on the right and goes back, and Becton is on the left of him and goes forward, the hole doesn't exist unless you come from a different angle. So when Elf lines in here and actually gets a push forward, next to Becton's push forward, the hole is parallel to the line of scrimmage, or perpendicular, and you can go right through. And there's been a lot more success there. So really happy with what we've seen there. The right side was okay. We only gave up three sacks. Makai Becton did give up one, maybe two of them, but it's hard to say because uh, you never know if Sam Darnold was supposed to take a nine-step drop as Becton lets Cleveland Farrell get around him. It's possible if Sam Darnold takes a five-step drop or a seven-step drop, you know, Becton's got the right angle on him. But because Darnold drops back so freaking far, the guy goes right around Becton. Sometimes it's a miscommunication, so I'm not going to hang anybody out to dry here. I don't know exactly what the situation was, but I believe Makai Becton is elite, and that is not going to change my opinion of him. I would have given, if it wasn't for that uh, Cleveland Barrel getting around him and the strip sack, I probably would have given Becton offensive player of the game just because it really was so seriously to the left side all game. Greg Van Roten is potentially out for the rest of the year. He's got an injury. We're at the point in the season here at 0-12. We've got four games left. We're at the point where you go on short-term IR in this COVID season. That's three games. You maybe can come back for Week 17. At this point, anybody who's injured, dinged up for the last couple of weeks will probably just not play for the rest of the season. You're not going to make them active. You're going to open up a spot for somebody else. You can put them on that short-term IR. But, you know, little minor injuries that are week-to-week are at this point season-ending injuries. So let's not freak out too much as guys like Ashton Davis potentially missing the rest of the season. Greg Van Roten potentially missing the rest of the season. Sometimes it's just better to do that than try to rush him back for one game at the end that means nothing. So that is what we are at there. Moving over to the receiving game. We didn't have a ton of receiving yards. We only had 186 passing yards. Most of them, high targets, high receptions, high yardage, and high touchdowns was Jameson Crowder, Sam Darnold's usual favorite target. He had two touchdowns, five catches, 47 yards on seven targets. Now behind him, our guy Denzel Mims with his low, career-low receiving yards for a game with 40 He only had two catches and was only targeted three times. That's something that drove me crazy. I love the way Mims plays. Getting him in open field, he gets yards after catch. He catches contested balls. He has nice route running ability, can get all over the field, has good size and everything. Um, I would like to see him targeted way more. And he did have that one two-point conversion that doesn't show up in yardage or receptions or stats or anything like that, but it was a nice play by him. And as a, you know, that's a third and goal from the two-yard line play that you would run. 
So you can kind of see what he'll be able to do with the Jets moving forward. It just doesn't count as a touchdown or anything. We had a couple opportunities in the red zone within like the five yard line where I really wanted to just do a, a if you can get man to man on the outside and do a pylon pass, a back corner fade, I would have loved to see him go up and get an opportunity for one of those. Cause I truly believe that he's got a better than 50% chance of getting it, but we didn't try that. He had an all right game. Nevertheless, I just want to see more than three targets. I don't want to see Denzel Mims only getting three targets. He's a huge part of the future. He's immensely talented from everything that we've seen. He makes stuff happen when the ball is thrown to him. And, you know, in a game you're only throwing for 186 yards, use your weapons. Rashad Perriman had one 22-yard catch early on in the game. Had three other targets after that. Didn't catch any of them, so he had that one catch for 22 yards. The next best receiving game on the team wasn't Brashad Perriman. It was a guy, Braxton Berrios, who had two consecutive catches at the end of, I think it was the end of the second half. He had one catch for 25 yards, another catch for eight yards, ended this game with two for 33. And he's just proving that he's a usable player. He's not an outside receiver. He is a slot receiver, which means that he would be Jameson Crowder's backup if we retain both moving forward. Potentially one day, Jameson Crowder, who's older, will probably move on. And Braxton Barrios potentially could be the fill-in there. We'll see what Joe Douglas wants to do. But Braxton Barrios has proved that he can be a reliable target for Sam Darnold or whoever's playing quarterback and can make things happen. It's not some amazing year that he's having, but it's somewhat productive, especially for the role that he's got. And no other receiver caught the ball in this game. You're looking for tight ends. Ryan Griffin, he led the unit. Two catches for 31 yards. Two nice plays, actually, kind of uh, getting it to him when he's open, letting him run up the sideline. Picked up 18 yards and 13 yards. So two pretty good plays from him, two first downs. But the other tight end, where was Chris Herndon? Did he play in this game? Yes, he did. He played 66% of snaps. Two-thirds of snaps, Chris Herndon was out there, didn't get a single target, no catches. He is our doghouse player of the game again. Again. Every single week so far, except for two, Chris Herndon has been our doghouse player of the game. Ten weeks now. Unbelievable. He was supposed to be such an important part of this team. He had one game where he got a touchdown and didn't even play all that well, had a bad drop, but it made us believe, like, maybe there's some more to come. I mean, he does have a rookie contract and will probably be under contract moving forward for at least one more year. So maybe he's starting to turn the corner a little bit. But no, he's out there for 66% of snaps and... The only thing that can save Chris Herndon at this point and actually truly can save him is an entirely new offense, a new offensive coordinator, new head coach. Adam Gase clearly has not used Chris Herndon much this year in the passing game. We won't know for sure if it's Chris Herndon or if it's just a really bad offense that we're running that doesn't know how to use its pieces until we have somebody else in here. So my assumption is that for the next four weeks, he'll probably be doghouse players a week or something close to it for all of them. And then we'll revisit it and expectations will definitely be higher if there's a new coach in place because he does have some ability. We've seen it. And we know that he's not even targeted 66% of snaps and there's not even some sort of screen or flat or rollout play that's just supposed to go to him. Not using your weapons. So that is the New York Jets offense in this game. 28 points, four touchdowns scored, two for Crowder, one for Ty Johnson, and one rushing for Sam Darnold. 370-plus offensive yards, one of our better games. Again, we should have won. 
We are going to move over to defense. Before we do that, we're going to take a quick pit stop at the cooler for a little what's on tap. That is right. This is what's on tap. And today, I'm not drinking anything special. I'm drinking what is called a Labatt Blue, a Canadian Pilsner imported beer. Why am I drinking this? Because roommate Kyle likes to get 30 racks to fill the beer fridge upstairs. And usually it's the same sort of thing. It's Miller, it's Bush, it's Budweiser, Coors, you know, the 30 racks they make. You don't see a lot of... Uh, different options in that realm, at least not at the package store that we go to. All of a sudden, you see a Labatt Blue 30 rack. Load the fridge right up. Bang, let's try something new. And it tastes kind of like a hybrid between a Bush Light and a Miller. A Miller Light, I should say. It's got that Pilsnery sort of taste like a Miller, but it's got that kind of low-quality taste like a Bush Light, like it would go flat pretty quickly. Very drinkable. Um, it definitely doesn't do... Too much. It's a 4.7% alcohol, 12-ounce can, but they're not that expensive. You can get 30 of them at a time. I'm sure the calories in this thing are somewhere below or close to 100. So, you know, if you want to just have one or two, do what I'm doing right now. It was my birthday weekend last weekend, so I had more than enough to drink over that span of three days. And when this podcast came up, I just really wasn't looking for uh, anything too crazy tonight. It was like, maybe I'll just hydrate with a Labatt Blue. And so that is what we are doing for tonight's podcast episode. And that is what's on tap. Now, quick commercial. Okay, swing over to the defense. Defensive side of the ball. We mentioned the Raiders rushing attack, totaling 72 rushing yards on 2.9 yards per rush. That's 3.1 for Booker. 2.8 for Richard, 2.0 for Riddick, and 2.5 for Carr. Nobody in that unit. Four guys rushing over 3.1 yards per attempt. Great run stopping. Great work by the Jets' defensive line. I want to highlight Quinn and Williams because I think that he was instrumental in this. He was the most successful guy on the defensive line, and he easily could have been our defensive player of the game, and I want to give it to him because I love Quinnen, and I think that he very 49% deserves it. He had four tackles in this game. He had a sack to put him up to six. Some sites say like six and a half. He had a tackle for loss. Three quarterback hits. Led the team. The whole team had six quarterback hits. Quinn and Williams had three of them. Nobody else had more than one. Quinn and Williams has been dominant. He's been the best player on our defensive line. He's everything we've been hoping for. It wasn't as dominant a week as he had last week against the Dolphins, but his presence was felt very strongly on that defensive line. And again, his counterpart, Foley Fadakasi, he had a nice pass deflection, a couple tackles, and his presence was felt. I mean, those two guys, that one-two punch at defensive tackle, I love it. I don't think we have to invest much more there. I think we got to get some ends next to them, and some better blitzing outside linebackers. But those two guys plug in the middle. Great job. And they're a big part of the reason why the Raiders ran so inefficiently. Other guys in the defensive line, pretty quiet game overall. We didn't really have any Quarterback hits from anybody other than John Franklin Myers on that unit. But even he didn't have a tackle, register any real sacks. He got, you know, that little bit of pressure once. Quiet game from everybody else there. Um, Derek Carr was pretty comfortable in the pocket for the most part in this game, aside from those Quinn and Williams rushes. It was basically just clogged running lanes and easy 386 yards of passing, or 381 yards, I suppose. For Derek Carr. Again, we always we always find a way. Um, I'll talk about that in a minute. We'll go to the linebackers. Very quiet game from them as well. Terrell Basham, 
not too much. Jordan Jenkins, not too much. Two guys that need to be replaced moving out of next year. When you go to those middle linebackers, you got two guys, Harvey Lange or Longy. Everybody's calling him Longy. I've been calling him Lange for so long, and I haven't truly heard from the horse's mouth that it's Longy. But it is now like nine for nine announcers have called him Longy. I may, I may change my tune, but until I know for sure, it will remain Harvey Lange for me. He's been up and down this year. He had eight tackles, second most in the team. He's shown some spurts where it's like, oh, that was a great game. He had one game where he was all over the field. But this week, he was burned. They found him in coverage. He was going up in a mismatch against a guy like Darren Waller way too many times. He was targeted, and it was a weakness for us, and they exploited him. So not a huge game from him, but the boy Neville Hewitt, he's going to get tonight's defensive player of the game for a few reasons. Number one, he led the team in tackles with 12. Number two... He's the only other player than Quinn Williams that had a sack. He had that quarterback hit, tackle for loss. And in this game, I mean, Neville Hewitt is not known for being a coverage linebacker. At times, he will run with a running back or with a tight end, but you always prefer him not to. But he is our main clog in the running game. He's the big guy. He's the surest tackler on the team. He tackles really well. He had a really nice goal line tackle in this game where a guy was sneaking through and he just lit him up, stood him straight up, and knocked him backwards. Neville Hewitt is a very good tackler, and he is our best run defender in that linebacking core. And when he leads that unit with tackles and holds the defense to 72 total yards, that's the reason why. We're not going to be giving player of the game to anybody in the passing game because the pass defense was just not very good, as it usually is. But Neville Hewitt, he made his presence felt all game long, got after the quarterback, stuffed the run all game, tackled great, and he's our defensive player of the game for this one. Now we got to move over to the defensive backs. And this was a troubling area again. I wouldn't say that Derek Carr had an amazing game. He was only 28 for 47, but he threw 381 yards, three touchdowns. He had that one pick that was probably Henry Ruggs' fault, not his necessarily. But it seems like every single week, one great player from whoever we're playing against just goes off. Like it's Keenan Allen just goes off against us, or Jacoby Myers or somebody just goes off. And in this game, Darren Waller, the best player on their offense playing in this game because Josh Jacobs was out, which probably would have helped their run game, but move on from that. We're playing without our starting running backs also. Darren Waller in this game, 13 receptions, 200 yards, and two touchdowns. That is a ridiculous tight end games. I don't know where it stacks up, but that's probably one of the better tight end games of all time. 13 receptions and 200 yards with two uh, two touchdowns. Time and time again, he was beating Lange. He was beating Ashton Davis. He was beating Lamar Jackson, Bryce Hall. Whoever you put on him, he was beating them. And that's the area of the field. You know, where Darren Waller flourishes is the middle of the field, somewhere between 7 and 18 yards out, usually towards the middle of the field. And that's where the Jets have bad zone coverage with Greg Williams' defensive play calling and usually give up a lot of yardage. In this game, they were playing a little bit more man than usual, but still, they couldn't man up with a guy like him. I mean, he's a mismatch for almost anybody in the league. And it's just a reason why we need better corners. We need better defensive backs that we can go up with guys like this. But we're playing without LaShawn Austin. We're playing without Brian Poole. So we have to play guys like Javelin Guidry, who forced his third fumble of the season and actually had a really cool play holding Ruggs' arms in with arm hooks, and we were able to pick that ball up. But Javelin Guidry's not super successful in defending the pass at the NFL level right now. Without LaShawn Austin, they were playing Lamar Jackson, and Lamar Jackson was the most picked-on 
cornerback that we had on the field today. I mean, he was picked on time and time again. And, you know, not even counting that last play of the game. Even before that, it was just, it felt like every single time a big play was completed, it was number 38 in defense. And you're like, oh. And listen, he's an undrafted free agent. He's not supposed to be a starting cornerback for the Jets. It's supposed to be LaShawn Austin. Move him down a spot. Brian Poole would be in there. And we're hopefully going to be drafting a guy in the upcoming draft. You'd be moving a guy like Lamar Jackson down to cornerback five or six. And if that's the case, he's not going to be touching the field all that much. That's a guy you could even replace. Bryce Hall, he made a couple mistakes in this game. He's a guy that I've been high on. I think that he played a better game than Bryce Hall. Probably had the best game of any cornerback on our team. But still made a few mistakes. A couple bad penalty. Uh, he did have one bad penalty. A couple bad missed tackles. A couple bad pursuits. And uh, not a great game from him. His worst game yet. But not as bad as some other guys. I think that Ashton Davis is showing us that he's not great in coverage. He has some ability to fly around the field. Hopefully he can make some plays soon. You know, be more of a playmaker out there with his speed, some interceptions, horse fumbles, sacks, things like that I see him doing more of. But he's not great in coverage at this point. He's not disciplined. He's tripped like three times so far this year. And uh, he's injured right now. They're saying he might be out for the rest of the year. Don't want to see that. I think that he deserves a spot on this team. I just, I think I said it last week. And I'm going to stick with it. I think right now, with where he's at, he's best suited for a number three cornerback role. He would be kind of in, with what we had this week, he would be in that Matthias Farley role. And, uh, you know, Farley, he was in there when Ashton Davis went out, and he was minimal impact. And the other guy, Marcus May, he had an up-and-down game. He had a really bad, I, I considered him for player of the game, he had a really bad missed tackle on Darren Waller that gave up a touchdown. He had a bad penalty that potentially would have saved a touchdown, but he was out of position and was going to give up a touchdown there to Darren Waller anyway. So those two things were enough of a blemish. But he had a really nice two pass deflections this game. One was beautiful, a downfield pass to Aguilar, and he got his hand up and swatted it away at the last second. That was beautiful. He was around the ball consistently. I liked what I saw from Marcus May aside from those few plays. And, uh, you know, he's basically at this point the defensive play caller for us. He's kind of like David Harris or one of those guys that's just kind of calling the shots for the whole defense, seeing him come out and say that he did not stand behind Greg Williams' defensive play call was great to me, especially considering there's no reason to stand up for a guy who's getting fired. It's not like he's your coach and like, oh, don't say that against you. He's not even his coach, so yeah, say whatever you want. If it's the truth and he's not here, then I'd like to kind of know that you weren't, <laughs> you also didn't believe in blitzing eight with 13 seconds to go. Marcus May will uh, hopefully be getting another contract from the Jets and Joe Douglas. He's proven that one of his weaknesses that we saw early on was just staying healthy. We weren't sure if he could ever do it. He has. So we'll see if he can get another contract from Joe Douglas. I hope he does. I just hope he doesn't ask for too, too much so that we can have, you know, some money to spend elsewhere as well because we do have a bunch of holes on this team right now. Special teams really quick. Braden Mann, he had a fine game. No punts inside the 20. Uh, he may be going to the Pro Bowl somehow. That's kind of cool. He's definitely not the best punter in the league, but people are voting for him. He was a big name coming out. He was the best punter in college and like an all-pro guy there, or all-country. Solid game. Sergio Castillo, he missed the extra point. And this guy just, I don't know, ever since I put my faith in him and said, yes, Ficken's out, it's all Castillo. He's the guy. He's just laid a goose egg. He had three extra point attempts. He's 66% in this game on extra points. And he missed one last week. A chip shot. I mean, I want my field goals to be like 75% plus. 
when extra points are 66? Yikes. No punt returns. Our special teams player of the game goes to Corey Ballantyne. This guy, defensive back, picked up kind of a journeyman. The Jets got him. He's not really played much at defensive back for us, but he has returned three or four kicks now. And three of them were really impressive. Two in this game, one for 33 yards and one for like 25 yards. And he's got explosiveness. And he both times he went upfield. You're like, whoa, that's a good return. Who is that guy? 27. I'm not used to, oh, that's Valentine. Then he did it again. You're like, oh, there he is again. I mean, he stood out in the special teams game in a positive way. And he had one good return last week as well. And I don't know if he's going to be some long-term guy. I mean, these special teams player of the games, you get like six options. You got a long snapper, punter, kicker, and some return men. But he did have a positive impact, and I don't know if it's going to amount to anything moving forward. Probably not going to get another contract, but for this week in this game, it was the best. Now, the only thing left to do is preview next week's game against the Seattle Seahawks. December 13th at 4.05 in Seattle. The Jets are currently 13.5-point underdogs from the site that I use. And it's a tough task. 13.5 is higher than it's been in a long time for this team. We have been covering the spread. We covered the spread in this week again. It was uh, 6.5 for the Raiders, or 7.5 in some cases. Jets lost by 3. So, again, Jets covering the spread. You know, we've been competitive in some games recently, just not winning them. We won this game, but then lost it. I'll say that a million times because we won this game but lost it. The Seahawks are a playoff team. They are like 8-4. and four. This is where it's interesting. They will be giving us their first-round draft pick this year. If they make the playoffs, the way that that draft pick will work is it will be the seeding of wherever they finish within the playoffs. So everybody not making the playoffs will be worst record to best record of non-playoff teams. And then when the playoffs begin, whoever gets bounced out first will draft first, and so on, until your Super Bowl winner and Super Bowl loser will draft 32 and 31. So if the Seahawks are making the playoffs, it really doesn't matter if they go in there 12-4 and or 10-6 and if they lose first round, right? Then you still get that something like, you know, 18th draft position. But it is possible, technically possible, that the Seahawks could miss the playoffs, in which case we would guarantee ourselves a draft position better than that, which would be really good. We want the Seahawks pick. Also, Jamal Adams is on that team, so we'd like to see him lose because he wanted to leave our team. And we get it. They're a better team than us, sure, and we're a horrible team, so it's not like we're making much up. But just to, you know, he it's, it means a lot to him. He's got a huge ego, and uh, I don't know, just kind of like to shut him up a little bit, make him feel a little lame, even just for a second. So if we beat them and they drop to 8-5, and five, There's an outside chance that teams like the Rams take the division and then the Vikings and Cardinals fight for that 6th and 7th wildcard spot and the Seahawks don't make it. They just lost to the Giants, so it's not like it's impossible for them to just lay eggs for the remainder of the year. But they are a good team, and they've been good all year long, and we should assume they're going to make the playoffs. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the league in Russell Wilson. He's very hard to sack. You saw the Giants have success this last week. What they do when they sack him is they stayed in their lanes. Instead of running at him, you run to an area basically left or right of him. 
And when you have a guy go up the middle and he flushes to the right or left, you've already got a guy waiting for him. But if you have two guys going right at him, he just goes around you and runs for 20, 30 yards. It just takes discipline from a defensive standpoint, and you have to have a couple guys there getting pressure. The Jets aren't great at discipline or pressure, but we've got a new defensive coordinator, so maybe it'll help. They use basically two targets, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Tyler Lockett is just a very good, sound quality receiver and DK Metcalf is an absolute physical freak who can run super fast, jump super high and drops the ball like one third of the time. Tight end, Will Disley, nothing to really be too afraid of. When you look at who's going to beat the Jets up, I mean, running game, they like Chris Carson, but we stopped the run pretty well. So when you look at it, it's like, it's really a two man thing here. And typically the Jets have been beaten up by like one guy, a Keenan Allen, a Darren Waller. But when you've only got DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, the script on the Seahawks is don't let Russell Wilson run. So have some lane discipline, maybe QB spies, and don't let those two guys beat you. Don't let Chris Carson beat you either. But I truly believe the Jets defensive line and Neville Hewitt can stop Chris Carson by themselves. So you have to stop DK Metcalf. You're going to have to bring some help over. And you're going to have to stop Tyler Lockett. You're going to have to bring some help over. And if somebody else is going to beat you, then that's just what it's going to be. It's fine. If they find a way to do it, then they beat the Jets. And they probably will beat the Jets anyway. But you don't want to lose to the Seahawks giving all the yardage to DK Metcalf because you're guarding the third and fourth receiver. You know what I mean? Make adjustments if you have to. But let's see what our new defensive coordinator can do. We got Frank Bush, linebackers coach in there. It's possible that he's got a great game plan in there. Then offensively, Sam Darnold's still healthy. He's going to be going out there with this cast of characters. Greg Van Roten probably won't be there on the right side. I don't know if Cameron Clark is ready to play yet. He's been inactive for basically the entire season. I would love to see Cam Clark, rookie Cam Clark, get an opportunity just to see what he's made of, especially because the alternative is an Alex Lewis, who's definitely better than David Andrews, but is currently being benched, and then David Andrews, who's been struggling all season. We'll see what happens there, but if they run to the left side, that's what it's all about. Jamal Adams has been playing. At first, he missed the first portion of the season, and after like six weeks or so, you could easily say Jamal Adams is definitely somewhat of a disappointment from what they expected to get. The last five weeks or so, the defense has gotten better, and he's been more impactful than he's been. He's been as impactful as he's been his entire career. Right now, he's all over the field. He's fired up. He's looking for the playoffs. He's got a, a bone to pick with this New York Jets team, and we got to watch him. Uh, we got to make sure that our tight ends are in to block, that our running backs are there waiting for it because you know when he pursues the quarterback, he pursues him hard and goes after him. And I don't want to see Sam Darnold get lit up by Jamal Adams and some revenge came from him. But other than that, it's a pretty good defense. But it, it's got a bunch of holes. I mean, they've got some defensive veterans like Bobby Wagner, and they've got uh, Carlos Dunlop. They traded for him. But then they've got some weaknesses in the past defensive game. And basically, if the Jets can run the ball like they did last week, if they can keep Ty Johnson and then hopefully like Josh Adams over Frank Gore, just I'd like to see a lot of Ty Johnson. And I'd like to see it on the left side. I'd like to see them four-stack left side because they can't even man on the left side and stop us, bring an extra guy over. And then start doing some play actions, some bootlegs and passes to the right until they go over there. I mean, really mess with them a bit with that ability. But Makai Becton is that good, I think. I think we can just do that stuff. We can start messing with teams if the, if the right play calls are called. 
And Adam Gase may not be the man to do it. And Frank Gore may be back, and it maybe runs up the middle again. And we may be back talking about an 0-13 New York Jets team poised to draft first overall and possibly get a new quarterback. But you know what? That's nothing that I'm not used to. I think the Jets will lose this game. I just don't want to see Jamal Adams knock anybody's head off. I don't want to see him dancing, celebrating in front of us too, too much. And I don't want to see the Jets get absolutely trounced. I think this team has dealt with a lot this year. I think this last week was extremely disheartening for them. A lot of these players don't care about getting the first overall pick. They just want to win a game. And they had it won. But they lose, and that sucks. And then they're firing coaches, and that sucks. And they're 0-12 right now, and that sucks. And it's just all negativity here. I feel bad. I don't want this team to have to, you know, if you're going to lose, let's lose by three again. Make it respectable. Lose your mind teams that this team can play because we do have some ballers out there. When you look across the field, guys like Jameson Crowder and Denzel Mims, what we're seeing from Makai Becton and Connor McGovern, going over to the defensive side, Quinnen Williams and Marcus May, we got guys that can do stuff. There's no reason that they should have to feel uh, <laughs> the way that they have to feel this year. There are some that are really bad that, that deserve to feel that way. But not, not all of them. So that is what we got for this week. As the Jets fall... 28-31 to 31 to the Las Vegas Raiders, going to 0-12 on the season. I ask you to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast wherever it's found. Follow me on Twitter at Jets underscore Dan. And come back next week to talk about the New York Jets versus Seattle Seahawks game. Thank you for joining me. I'm Dan Burnham, and this is The Jet Life. <laughs>